0: Welcome to the other half of Church Podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. With Michael Hendricks and Jim Wilder, we explore the brain God has given us and what we need for a healthy, transformational community of faith. are back for a special episode of the Other Half of Church podcast, and I have Jim Weiler and Michael Hendricks with me today, and we are going to talk about some of the questions that readers of the book, The Other Half of Church, have had, and how um, we can kind of take this concept of brain science, theology, and church life deeper, and really help you guys out in um, discovering who God is and how we do community together. So first, I wanted to read one of the um, reviews that was left on Amazon that resonated with me and was a similar experience that I had to the other half of church as a book. Um, A reader wrote, I've read a lot of books, been to a lot of seminars, listened to a lot of podcasts, but in this book, I found some incredibly helpful perspectives and truths that explain where a lot of spiritual formation efforts fall short and practical things on how to remedy this. Michael and Jim, what type of response have you guys heard from people who have read the book?
1: Well, I just recently was contacted by a pastor of a church um, who said he had picked up my book. He, he'd, he'd read the uh, the U version Bible plan based on on uh, uh, other half of church with our chapter on joy, and he got the book and read it. and He said it was almost like I was reading as we were Jim and I were reading his mind or telling his story. Because he'd been um, practicing the the accepted spiritual uh, exercises that we do as Christians, and uh, those seem helpful sometimes, and not other times. And there's other times where it just seemed like nothing worked. Mm-hmm. You know, and there were stubborn problems where the usual Christian prescriptions didn't seem to to help. And uh, and so he was he was coming to the same conclusion I was as a pastor of discipleship that I'm you know just sitting down and scratching our heads and say. I don't think I understand really how people grow as Christians. I, I'm missing some big pieces. And so he he's really excited to, to dive into this and learn all he can.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: From my perspective, I've had a lot of people uh, who are saying, you know, this book really turned the lights on for them. Uh, they've kind of sensed something was wrong, but uh, haven't been able to, Put their fingers on a solution, and they like that this book offers solutions. One denominational leader in California told me he, that he's buying a dozen at a time and passing them out to all the pastors he knows because it really does clarify how do we get to the objective of, of changed lives. You know, where do we start uh, uh, in a way that he's never read before? So we're, we're mm-hmm. experiencing a whole lot of enthusiasm, uh, very good reception to the book and uh, remarkably little um, criticism or opposition.
0: Hmm. Yeah. That's been an experience that I've had with it as well, that it's um, it helps turn the lights on to, to an area of church life and even our own personal individual spiritual life as to why sometimes change happens so quickly and why other times it can feel like it goes so slowly. Um, One question that I've gotten, and I'd be curious how you would answer this is that the book title is called the other half of church. And it leads to kind of a next step question of what is the other half? Mm -hmm. Uh, Jim, if you want to answer that one for us. Okay.
2: Well, the other half of church is what it means to be personally present and involved with our, uh, with our God. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about church as being um, belief or, you know, our faith or where we worship. So those are like activities and beliefs. But this sense of uh, really being relationally connected to God to interact with, with the God we love. And to let that love spill over into our relationships, so that when we are relating to others, we're actually becoming uh, a little bit of God's presence in their life. That kind of relational connection, which really gets lost with uh, uh, you know watching your uh, virtual church, and uh, you know even before the the whole COVID situation, a lot of people were saying, "Well, what is the actual point in going to church? Why should we be together?" Uh, and the the idea of why she, we should be together becomes really clear when we realize that God is much more relational. So that whole half of church, which uh, sort of gets assumed, but it, it's really hard for especially uh, American audiences to figure out how we build that kind of connection with each other. Um, mm-hmm. That's what really touches us when it comes to transforming uh, who we are, because the brain is actually looking for my people to help us uh, develop a clearer sense and a new sense of our, uh, you know, be more Christ-like, really, as opposed to just being a better person.
0: So if somebody has, has read the book and they see the need for transformation, we've seen that on Amazon reviews, and we've heard people talk directly to us about, like, I need to change something. And now I feel like I know what needs to change. Michael, what would you say should be the first steps from here? What should a, let's say it's a church leader or just a church member, even what do they do to start making positive change in their community and in themselves?
1: Well, that's a great question, Jeremy. And, and I've heard that same question myself in my experiences, um, And uh, just like Jim said, you know, the other half of church, the relational side of our growth is oftentimes assumed, but ends up being neglected. So really the first step is to turn that neglect into intentionality. And the intentionality should be directed, I think, best towards the soil, the, the, the analogy we use in our book, which is improving the quality of our soil and the first ingredient we add to soil to make it more healthy and full of life is, is to increase the joy in ourselves, um, the joy in our communities, the joy experience in God's presence. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and there's very specific practices. The great thing about this is it's not magic as far as you don't have to wait around for some sort of spontaneous arrival of, of God's power um, we can actually intent, put some intentionality behind it and start building joy in our communities and start and there's practices to build joy with God and usually that's the first place I tell people to start because all of the other stages of of our discipleship really depend on a solid and high level joy in our own lives otherwise you know with with a low joy level there's not much that works at all even good things don't really work
2: mm-hmm. you know Michael I'd like to add to that a minute uh talking with men often about like a relational Christianity, it's like, are you getting into something touchy-feely here? What's this relational <laughs> business? It's like kind of mysterious and, and, and um, you know, makes us insecure in a sense, you know, like, well, I'm not sure I'm good at that. But building joy when we're glad to be together really has some very specific foundations. And what I find with with men in particular is when you know exactly how to do it, uh, it takes the mystery out of it and makes it work. And that's what I like about this. It's not mysterious, uh, even though you, we use this word relational. Uh, it means it's it's an effective way of connecting with God and uh, an effective way of connecting with other people that makes them glad to be with us. And just a mm-hmm. few simple practices like knowing... Uh, that you should make eye contact and, and smile when you first arrive stay curious you know some of those things that we can talk about here have um very very specific practices that go with them let people start to form much more deep attachments than uh, you do when you don't really know how it works
0: what would you guys say is the main application for let's say there's somebody that is disillusioned with church. If they are somebody that maybe they went to church growing up and had either a bad experience or kind of fell out of a connection with the church, does this, the book and the concept itself, does it apply to them or is it specifically for people who are attending church on a regular basis?
1: Well, I think just that, that kind of person is, is, especially going to be open to this because I believe a lot of our disillusionment from church is our disillusionment from a, uh, a, a shallowly racial, relationally connected uh, environment where it's just all skimming the surface and all about, uh, you know, just be- believing the right things and acting the right way, following the rules. But there seems to be a, a, a depth and a beauty that the gospel offers, but that we're not finding it. We're not experiencing mm. it in church. And that's what breeds disappointment. Mm-hmm. And so I think the main message of the other half of church is that um, there's hope there, that God designed us into the flesh of our brains. He designed us to want uh, th- those relationships where our light, where our faces light up on each other, where we're so happy to be together, where we bond, um, where we share our weakness, and where we st- start feeling each other's emotions. And there's a, there's a deep bonding that goes on that's really fundamental um, to us as Christians, to our discipleship, to how we grow,
2: to how we um find out who we really are,
0: mm-hmm.
2: the other thing about the other half of church is you know when you're disillusioned and you and you leave a place, you need someone to articulate to you, you know there's something over there that really is wrong that's not not working you know mm-hmm. is it just me in which case Christianity doesn't work for me um Or is it that the way the church I've been going to or the the experience I've had is actually deficient in some some very important nutrients? Uh, And so I I think the book really acknowledges, uh, here's what's wrong, not because the people in church are bad people, but because there's Mm -hmm. just some things that we've left out. Uh, and, of course, it isn't going to work for you. That's, I think, why pastors are, are so enthusiastic about it. It's like mm-hmm. it says, here's what's wrong with what you're doing without saying, yeah. you know, you're a bad pe- person or you've been a bad Christian. It's just we've been missing some important stuff.
0: Yeah. And what about those who aren't church? Maybe they're not even believers at all. What does the other half of church and the the concepts of brain science how does it apply to them? Does that, does there a practical benefit for people maybe who are even outside of the faith in um, understanding and applying these things? Well, I think I would
2: start with uh, one of our last points, which is how you make the uh, church kind of uh, narcissism resistant. Um, The, problem that the, the church, the non-church people have is, again, wondering what's wrong with those Christians. And so to begin with, uh, answering the question of, of here's the kind of corrections that we need to see happening inside the church, because generally everybody likes Jesus, but the view of the church is a whole lot different. And mm-hmm. so like, why is that not come together is something that I find non-Christians are very interested in talking about. And it tends to make Christians defensive. So here's something that says, "Yeah, we can really talk about that," where we've been missing some things. But, but finally, um, I think it's it's deep within people to say, "I need a place to belong. I need a place that will help me become a person that's that's more like the Jesus that I ad- admire." And mm-hmm. if here's a community that is got some um, you know, good science going into it. And for, for once science and uh, the Bible don't have to argue with each other. It's like, these Mm -hmm. are stuff we agree with, you know, look, this makes sense. Um, The, the, the presentation of a, of a scientifically sound biblical view of human beings is something that's a, a real discussion starter. It's, it's a, I think people get very curious about it uh, whenever I you know start discussing these kind of topics and and how do we keep from being narcissistic and how do we uh, listen to each other? These are the problems that our culture really needs answers to. Mm-hmm. Um, so it opens that door.
1: Yeah, I, I want to resonate with that too, and even in my own experience, I have a neighbor on one side. Where he kinda asked me when I was in the when Jim and I were in the process of writing the book and so I was inside writing a lot and he's asking me what I was doing and I explained. And I brought up the topic of narcissism. I had him. Like mm. he was there and he says, I want to know everything about narcissism. And we ended up talking for like an hour and a half and we've had many talks since then. And mm. uh and then I have two two women live next door on the other side or other neighbors, and with them the thing I mentioned was joy. Mm. And when I mention joy, you know, a lot of times if I were talking to Christians, I would say, you know, God actually designed our brains um, with joy in mind. Um, but if for, for someone who maybe is not a believer, I might say this, that, you know, our brain was really designed with joy in mind. And it scans our environment six times a second looking for joyful faces, looking for faces who are lighting up because they're glad I am with them. Hmm. And, that, and that joy functions almost like gas in our relational gas tank. And it gives us hope and it gives us energy. Um, and, and it gives us resilience. And when I mentioned things like that, they were just like, you know, they were there. They're like, okay, mm. tell us more. You know, they invited me over and they said, okay. And they went inside and got a beer sat down and we started drinking and, and they wanted to hear all I could sa- to say about it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you think, um, COVID-19 and the pandemic has revealed some of the the insights that you've learned about brain science? Like what does, I guess what I'm asking is how does a a shutdown and a kind of skepticism about meeting together and being in person, what does that do on a brain science level to our connections, to our joy levels, to the ways that we relate to each other?
2: Well, the first question that I get mostly is why is it that being on these video calls is so fatiguing for me? Yeah, uh, as opposed to being in person, I just get there's a level of getting tired, and uh, the reason for that, from brain science point of view, is that uh, the video signal has got this little delay in it. So again, mm-hmm. six times per second, our brain is getting frustrated because it's not getting the ping back from the other person quite as quickly, and it's waiting and waiting and waiting. So it's it's delay. It's like. Uh, delaying the uh, recognition. And so you're always uh, just sort of in this slightly tense position Hmm. that uh, keeps interactions from being quite as joyful. Now, you can still get some joy, but it's attenuated. It's not quite as intense as as it is. And then from the church side, um, I hear from church leaders all around like, how do I get people back now that have gotten used to not coming to church? Mm -hmm. Uh, What is it that we need to offer? Uh, And really, why is it important? Uh, Why should, why shouldn't church just migrate to an all online platform? Um, And again, the, the importance of face to face uh, interactions and, um, not only just individual face-to-face interactions, but being part of a group that's actually um, interacting with one another as a group is very important. Now, Michael, you go into that with, uh, in some of the last parts of the other half of church, saying that some of the ways that we've done church uh, are not ideally designed to invite people back. So is there anything you'd like to add to that?
1: Yeah, when you think of the, the architecture of church, you know, a lot of what we do is we, we, uh, we design chairs or pews all pointed, packed in together, all pointed in one direction towards the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so basically they're designed with packing as many people as you can get into a room to hear a message. And, uh, and, and it would be very different if we designed our churches with, in their architecture and the way we do the interior with joy in mind. With hmm. the importance of seeing each other's faces, connecting with e- with each other, letting each other know how happy we are to be together. Um, you know, it's. I'm, I'm not saying it can't be done, or, or that we do it a different way, and that it's wrong to have pews. But there, it does at least make us think. Okay, what would a high joy church do, so that we are constantly seeing each other's faces and and building joy together as we hear God's word preached, as we sing. You know, it's just mm-hmm. another ingredient we would add that is, is largely been missing.
0: Mm-hmm. And it seems like shutdowns and pandemics have really accelerated that and revealed some of those cracks in the architecture of the way that things are run and have been run and make it tough to build joy. It's not something that's insurmountable, but it, it definitely isn't designed around building joy.
2: Yeah, that's quite uh, true, Jeremy. We've really designed church around delivering a message, not mm-hmm. around developing a people. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, I think with the tensions in culture as well as uh, the tensions of the pandemic, um, how we go about strengthening our sense of being a people of God that, that express mm-hmm. his presence in the world um, is really Kind of needs to be refocused. Uh, I think. Uh, I think I saw a, a statistic by Barna that shows about seventy percent of Christians believe their uh, Christianity really doesn't have any impact on the people or life around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a private experience in one way or another, and you know, I think it's um, becomes sort of a powerless Christianity in many ways. And it's that private.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm curious too, with how insightful brain science and kind of what you've been working to unearth in that field, how applicable it is to church life and community life. What other areas does it apply to? I, I, have you have you thought about how brain science can apply to how we counsel families, how we counsel husband and wife, um, what it looks like in leadership? What other types of fields could could this research give insight to? Hmm.
2: Well, I know that Moody has a book coming out in, I believe, January uh, with uh, Chris Coursey on how this uh, brain science affects our relational capacity in uh, both marriage and work. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Marcus Warner uh, has another book with uh, me out here in uh, with Moody that's on uh, doing this for leadership, both secularly and, um, and as well as within the Christian circles and, um, but the fun thing for me is talking with one of our friends, it's a Michael, one of the friends that you and I have in common, Steve uh, is trying to take this into his work environment, purely mm. secular work environment. But how do I go about building um, this kind of joyful relational environment where uh, people are glad to see me, we're building one another up? Uh, I've got another letter from a friend uh, today who's trying to, change a hospital environment hmm. and saying, you know, we, we need to be more relationally connected in here. The stress is being created by uh, both the economy and uh, the COVID situation has got people strained pretty badly. So how mm-hmm. do we build joy uh, within the staff uh, in such a way that it affects all levels of the hospital organization and uh, activity? So, the, uh, taking this into business, taking it into uh, family relationships is, uh, happening fairly regularly around us.
1: Yeah. And we've also talked about, um, the importance of this in the areas like if
2: EMTs
1: and first responders, people who work in, in, uh, emergency rooms and hospitals and neonatal, where they are just seeing trauma after trauma, people shot, bleeding, dying babies that have cancer. Um, and, uh, you know, the statistics are, are pretty shocking with people in these environments that work there every day. You know, the, the levels of PTSD and addiction, uh, even suicide. So what can we do to, to raise joy and and help them share this, these burdens together so that they don't collapse and, uh, and to fill up their gas tanks so that they have the energy to actually do this really important work? You know, that's mm-hmm. what they're doing is very key. Um, But just with a few things, knowing knowing about the brain and the importance of joy and our connection together and how to be resilient in that would, I think, would really make a huge difference.
2: You know, Michael, you have something in in our book here on enemy mode. And you were telling me the other day about the strong response you're getting from people when you talk a little bit about how to get out of enemy mode, which Mm. we're actually seeing at a political level, at a racial (laughs) level, at a family level all over the place so what are you seeing there
1: well yeah you find that all over the place where there's there's a there's a brain mode that we go into where people instead of connecting and being curious about people we start uh, either we just shut down and don't care what they think and we try to get away or to or to, to defeat them or people become problems or enemies to defeat or we go into kind of a, a more subtle more kind of sneakier predatory enemy mode where we're actually you know, you know, like a like an animal predator, we're we're looking at people and we're finding their weaknesses and we're we're reading their 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 uh, their facial cues and finding out what hurts them, when, and so that we can take advantage of them. And both yeah. of those enemy modes are just normal things we go to in today. But imagine, you know, if we if we train police officers to stay out of enemy mode in very stressful situations. Um, And imagine if some of the racial reconciliation we're doing is done with enemy mode in mind. Like, how do we stay out of enemy mode while we're reconciling and and trying to heal this big wound of our country? Um, So I think it's really a blind spot that would would be very helpful in, in a lot of healing in our nation.
2: You know, one of the things about the intelligent enemy mode is that what you're looking for is a way to make the other person lose. And I just happened to glance at the news this morning uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, there's a lot of trying to make the other person lose and look bad, uh, mm-hmm. uh, even to our own detriment. You see, that's the thing about enemy mode. You'll make the other person lose even if you lose too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these kind of, uh, constantly butting heads with one another, uh, just to make the other person look bad and lose. Uh, it's very discouraging uh, to people who are voting and trying to participate in the in the public arena. So if there is a, a way around that, to say, uh, here's actually how I keep myself from going into that same kind of enemy mood So I don't go, caring mm-hmm. or postal on people. I don't, you know. <laughs> Part of what's in this book is are the you know the basic principles for learning that as a church. And wouldn't that be Mm -hmm. really nice to have that influence on culture and families as well?
0: Yeah. I just imagine if, if the church was able to be so filled with joy that we were able to be this example against enemy mode, that when the, the culture, the political world is trying to, to lure us into that, um, that intelligent enemy mode of trying to tear down the other person, if we were able to to hold fast against that, that would be an incredible witness to a watching world that there's something deeper inside of us than, than in the rest of the world. There's something that's holding us fast in a um, changing environment.
1: Yeah, Jeremy, imagine if part of our church meeting, when we got together, if someone up front said, so who here in the last week found themselves going into enemy mode? And once you come up and tell us a story of, of how you did, how you connected to Jesus, and that, and how you, how you came out of it, tell us your mm-hmm. story. And so we would hear stories regularly of this enemy mode thing that it's normal and and it's something we'll struggle with, and we and we teach each other.
2: You see, we tend to think uh, that we're supposed to willpower ourselves into not doing that, but this mm-hmm. willpower business doesn't. It's not the way the brain works. We're not wired for that. So once you know the this the right steps and procedures, how do I go about? Uh, re-engaging with uh, Jesus and with others to get out of this. When do I need help? How do I go about learning it? It, it goes from being a mysterious, well, I, it'd be really nice if you could do that to a, a learnable and teachable process. And we'd love to see the Christian community be the place where you learn that.
0: Mm-hmm. And one, one last area of application that I'm, I'm very interested in is the topic of prayer. Um, it can be such a a confusing spiritual discipline of knowing um, where does the second part of the conversation come through and talking with you, Jim, a while back, you were talking about the, the fast and the slow processor systems of the brain and how the fast system runs faster than conscious thought. And I was just curious, um, What insights into the topic of prayer have you learned from brain science? And, Michael, how can we as a church do a better job of encouraging um, the spiritual discipline?
2: Well, starting with the first uh, part about prayer, uh, the general feeling I learned about prayer when I grew up up learning that was that it was sort of like... um, Uh, sending these one-way messages to god so the thing you had to do is figure out how to word what you wanted to say but there wasn't an awareness of god really talking back to me i mean i heard about it in some of the the language like you have to pray through and you have to uh persevere in prayer and um you know i I thought what is this trying to you know bend god's arm behind his back that isn't going to work you know so being aware of what I actually need from God, though, is a, a, a brain state. It's, you have to be sort of present and aware of of who I am and what is it that I'm bringing to God, even if we don't know how to articulate it. And that's the interesting thing about the fast track. Since it goes faster than words, it, we can actually think we of something we want to articulate to God that we can't really put into words. And that's where the Bible tells us the Spirit helps us. But to notice there's something deep in us we have to communicate to God. And then in the fast track, notice a thought that might come from God. Stop and notice uh, what mm-hmm. God is trying to get our attention pointed to. Um, mm-hmm. So I, one of the things about the, the fast track is that uh, you don't really get a lot of uh, sort of uh, why explanations come into your mind. But if you ask God, what do I need to know? What do I need to pay attention to? And then we stop mm-hmm. and notice with our relational circuits on. If the relational system in our brain is off, we'll still hear kind of what God wants us to hear, but it won't strike us as important. Relationally, you know, the it's a little bit like your cell phone. If the phone rings and you think to yourself, I don't know that number, whatever they've Mm -hmm. got to say is suddenly not important to you. But if Mm -hmm. the phone rings and you notice, oh, that is so-and-so calling. They don't usually call right now. Your brain immediately gives this uh, importance to the the message coming in. You'll pick up right away. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's that way in our brain too. If we're noticing what we're looking for, a a, a thought from God, we will give it an importance that we would otherwise ignore. And so the the brain... Mm -hmm it has that relational connection to the point that the more we depend on God to tell us who we are and to guide our steps, the more we, we love and are connected with him, the more importance the brain will give to that moment.
0: It reminds me of um, in the Bible when it talks about God being a still, small voice. Mm-hmm. That it's like that you can miss it if you're not paying attention.
2: Now you had a question for Michael in there too.
0: Yeah, you had
1: one about uh, how we apply this in church. And I, I think very much in agreement with what Jim says is that people need to be taught and trained this, how to do this, how to have a prayer life, be a two-way conversation, be a discussion and an experience of God as well, rather than us just writing a postcard and sending it off,
0: mm-hmm. you know. And
1: then if we see something change in our life three months later, we we thought, oh, God got my postcard, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, just this kind of still small voice, where we're actually we're we're not just talking and and not listening, but it's it's about fifty fifty, and uh, and I was never taught that. I was taught prayer was mainly me talking to God, and no one ever ever told me about the other side of the conversation. But it mm-hmm. very very much can be trained, and it, and it really is. There's a part of our brain that's dedicated to really this kind of nonverbal fast track mutual mind state with God. And all those things can, can be trained, and so this we just need to make them intentional, like we do, you know, with the study of scripture and everything we, that we
0: are intentional with. So it sounds like we could have a book called "The Other Half of Prayer." <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to thank you both for all of the work that you have put into this book, into this podcast, and. I am very eager to see how God uses this to continue to, to help the church discover the benefits of joy, of Hesed, of relational community, and just the way that we can continue to see the bride of Christ being made more and more beautiful. Um, so thank you for all the work you guys have done, all the research, all the prayer, and just praying that the Lord will continue to add his blessing to that work.
2: Thank you, Jeremy. It's been really encouraging working with you, too.
0: Yeah, thank you, Jeremy. This has been fun. You've been listening to The Other Half of Church podcast, a podcast at the intersection of brain science, theology, and church life. To learn more about the book by Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks, visit TheOtherHalfOfChurch.com.